Welcome to this podcast of the New York City Bar Association. In this episode, 2022 New York State Budget Advocacy, a discussion with City Bar Committee members. Elizabeth Cochenda, New York City Bar Director of Advocacy, speaks with three City Bar members about issues that they advocated to include in the New York State budget. Lisa Pearlstein, Betsy Kramer, and Ed Murray discuss the work that they did through their City Bar committees to bridge the digital divide for New Yorkers living in shelters, increase funding for representation of parents and children in family court and matrimonial proceedings, and reform the Joint Commission on Public Ethics. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. Here's Elizabeth Cochenda. We're here today to discuss the 2022 New York State budget. The New York State budget has a lot of moving parts and is often seen as fairly opaque and hard to navigate. Today, we're going to be talking to three City Bar committee members about how the City Bar advocates for reform through the budget process and talking about some of the outcomes. But before we get to that, I wanted to give our listeners a quick primer on how the New York budget process works. The budget process dominates the first three months of the legislative session, which starts in January and runs until June. An on-time budget, which spoiler alert, this year's budget was not, is due March 31st. So the first half of the legislative session is dedicated almost solely to dealing with budgetary issues. The process kicks off when the governor presents her budget in mid-January. The budget is not one single bill. There are multiple bills, including appropriation bills that are purely fiscal, outlining specific line items of how much money is going to various parts of the government. And then there are bills called Article 7 bills, which have more substantive policy in them. The governor then has 30 days to provide any amendments she'd like to make to her initial proposal before the legislature comments. During those 30 days, the legislature holds hearings to provide the public an opportunity to testify on the budget bills. After they hear testimony, the legislature responds with their one-house budget bills at the end of February or early March. The Senate and the Assembly can strike and add new sections to the budget bills, but they have to work off the bills as they've been presented. The legislature doesn't get to draft entirely new bills, which is one of the reasons that the governor has so much control over the budget process. After the legislature submits their one-house bills, the governor and the legislative leaders negotiate final budget language. Each governor and legislative leader over the years has handled these negotiations slightly differently. But in general, direct negotiations happen between the governor, the Senate majority leader, and the assembly speaker and their respective staffs. We used to call this the three men in the room because all three people who were negotiating the budget were men, and because much of the negotiations happened behind closed doors in the room where it happened, if you will, without members of the public, press, or in some cases, even individual legislators really knowing where the negotiations stood. The ascension of Andrea Stewart-Cousins to the role of Senate Majority Leader finally broke three-men moniker, and it's been further shattered this year with Kathy Hochul serving as governor, but the opacity of leadership-level negotiations has continued. Every year, City Bar committees comment on issues included in the budget. We often stay away from commenting on specifics related to funding. With so many committees advocating to steer money to different places, we'd be negotiating against ourselves. The exception, of course, is funding for legal services, which is core to the City Bar's mission. Committees also often oppose budget provisions they find problematic. A ton of policy gets shoved into various budget bills. So our committees always try to take a close eye to the budget to make sure there aren't any problematic policies sneaking their way through massive budget bills. In today's discussion, we'll be focusing on three proposals from this year's budget that fall into different buckets of advocacy work. 
the first ensures that there is internet access and temporary housing facilities for people experiencing homelessness. This is an example of an issue that we advocated be included in the budget. The second, an increase to compensation rates for 18B lawyers, is something that we supported that was already in the budget. And the third, replacing the Joint Commission on Public Ethics had a bit of both. We supported including a replacement in the budget as it was proposed by the governor, but then ultimately ended up opposing the final approach that was adopted. We'll get into all the details, so let's turn to our committee members. Lisa Pearlstein is the director of the Legal Clinic for the Homeless at the City Bar Justice Center and is a member of the City Bar Social Welfare Law Committee. I've been working with Lisa since 2020, advocating for a law that would guarantee Wi-Fi for New Yorkers in contemporary housing. Most New Yorkers living in shelter don't have the Wi-Fi access they need to look for housing, search for jobs, and seek medical care and public benefits. And since 82% of people in New York shelters are people of color, Wi-Fi access in shelters is a matter of racial justice too. This might not sound like a problem that could get solved in a state budget, but in fact, advocates seized on the budget process as a way to move the issue forward. So this issue that we're going to be talking about today um, that rose out of the work that you've done, not only for the City Bar Justice Center, but also through the, the Social Welfare Committee is a little different from our other issues that we're talking about today, because this is a, a really an example of the City Bar and our committee is trying to actively get something into the budget as opposed to commenting on something that's already there. So we're going to back up a little bit and to provide a little context for our listeners in terms of the issue and where this came from. So can you let us know how the the issue of internet access in homeless shelters first kind of came to the Justice Center and then the city bar's attention? So prior to the pandemic, my project, the Legal Clinic for the Homeless, ran legal clinics with volunteer lawyers at shelters throughout New York City, primarily in the Bronx, and Manhattan, but in other areas of New York City as well. And we started talking to the clients about going online to perhaps apply for foods for SNAP, just formerly food stamps, or look for resources. And we started hearing online, we don't have internet access. Or we heard, oh, okay, I'll see if my phone has if I can get through on my phone, I may not be able to turn my phone on. I haven't paid my bill. I have a data plan that costs $95 a month. That's how I access Wi-Fi. And I was stunned. You spend $95 there's to access Wi-Fi through your date through a data plan. You're on public assistance and food stamps. I, I just couldn't, I couldn't believe it. And I said, the shelters are not the shelter. I would ask clients, shelters, your shelter's not providing you with Wi-Fi. And I would get the same answer over and over again. Well, the caseworkers have Wi-Fi, but we don't have Wi-Fi. And I was stunned. So we decided to do a more formal survey of our clients about their Wi-Fi access and what they would use Wi-Fi for. And before the pandemic, in the fall of 2019, we completed our surveys and we started collating the answers. And what we found was that only 6% of our clients had access to the internet through their shelters. 
67% wanted internet access, but had no regular access to Wi-Fi. And 75% agreed that internet access would improve their living circumstances. And what did they say if they would use internet for if they had access to Wi-Fi? 70% said they would use Wi-Fi to look for housing, 60% to find a job, 63% to find medical care, 45% to access public benefits, and 67% to access email. So we realized this was like a major, major problem for our clients. We wanted to do something about it at the Citywide Justice Center. So we wrote up a report with our pro bono partner, and then the pandemic hit. <laughs> and we knew we had to issue this report, publicize the findings, and run with it because everything went online, right? Every you had to anything you could do was the only way you could do it was on the internet. Once public benefit offices closed, social security offices, welfare offices, people needed to figure out where they could find food. Everything was online there, doctor's appointments, everything. So we knew we had to run with the report. And I presented the report to the Social Welfare Law Committee and the Policy Department at the City Bar and my good friend Elizabeth and decided at some point after we published the report that we would start the Wi-Fi for Homeless campaign. And now here we are two years later, still in the pandemic <laughs> and still trying to get access for um, all shelters throughout the state, all temporary housing throughout the state to ensure that there is reliable free access to internet for folks who are residing in those facilities. So yeah, why don't you talk um, briefly about what we saw at the city level over the last year and a half or so. We got a lot of support from other organizations, including Vocal New York, legal services offices, legal aid offices, private law firms, corporate legal departments, over 30 organizations signed on to our report and the campaign. And we took a number of actions. I would say we got the president of the bar, Sheila Boston, to write a letter to the mayor demanding that this was actually an issue. Lack of internet access in shelters was a racial justice issue because over 82% of people living in shelters are people of color. Social Welfare Law Committee members testified at public hearings on the digital divide. In September of 2020, the New York Times published an article citing the City Bar Justice Center's report on lack of Wi-Fi in shelters. Due to the publicity and the testimony and the th threat of a lawsuit actually from legal aid, the mayor finally announced in October of 2020 that the city would provide Wi-Fi, but only in shelters with school children. Legal Aid ultimately had to file its lawsuit because this there was all this momentum to get Wi-Fi in shelters for school children, and the city was dragging its feet. It was not doing anything. So they filed a class action. Ultimately, Legal Aid prevailed and won a court order, and the city installed Wi-Fi in 244 shelters where school children reside. The court 
gave the city until August of 2021 to complete the project. It did get completed so school children in September of 2021 could go back to school or be at home if they needed remote schooling and have access to internet. So at least we prevailed and got these 244 shelters covered. However, as of February 2022, there are close to 19,000 adult single people living in shelters and countless adult families without school children who don't have Wi-Fi access in their shelters. Also, there are shelters throughout New York State that lack Wi-Fi. So this continues to be a pressing issue that we need to take care of. Building off of the work that we did at the city level, it became clear, as you just mentioned, given the, the size of the homeless population in, throughout the state, um, that this was a statewide issue that really needed to be addressed at a city and state level. So legislation has been introduced by Senator Biagi and uh, Assemblymember Reyes that would ensure that all temporary housing throughout the state would be equipped with internet access and Wi-Fi access. And the city bar through the social welfare committee and our education in the law committee has been doing a lot of advocacy. We issued a letter to Governor Hochul in the fall um, that was joined by a number of advocates, which we'll drop into the show notes for folks to take a look at, um, that urged her to address this issue in the budget. Because this is an issue she's spoken about. She's talked about the digital divide. She's talked about the need for greater broadband access. But one of the things that we've seen throughout this campaign is that New Yorkers experiencing homelessness are often left out of that conversation. People don't think about it. They don't realize what's going on in the shelters. They don't realize that there's not access. And they don't realize the special needs for folks that are living in temporary housing. As we talked about at the start of the podcast, the governor puts forward her bill language first. So when we saw that that, unfortunately, the the language around internet access and temporary housing wasn't included, we decided to turn to the legislature and ask that the Senate and Assembly put this in their one-house bills. So we met frequently with bill sponsors and tried to, and other advocates, including Vocal New York and some of the other lead groups that have been involved in this issue, and encouraged the bill sponsors to try to get this legislation into the budget. So what that looked like was bill sponsors encouraging their colleagues to sign on to letters that indicated to leadership that they wanted to see this issue addressed in the one house budget bills, putting forward language that they thought would address the issue. We had some success in the Senate getting a number of senators to sign on to a letter in support of Senator Biagi's bill. And then our groups also wrote their own letters, reaching out to legislators, urging them to sign on and requesting that they speak up about this issue in conference. So one of the ways that each house decides what to put in their one house bills is they have conference meetings and legislators are able to speak in those meetings, indicating what their priorities are for the budget. So this was an area where we really encourage members to speak up about the Wi-Fi issue. But unfortunately, the bill was not included in either one house bills. So there seems to be a lot of next steps that we can be taking, even though something like the the bill ultimately didn't make it into the final budget, there is still the standalone bill. I think there's a lot to be done. One thing that we did see, and we're still digesting at this point what was in the budget, there is some language in the transportation budget around increasing broadband access. So we're going to be taking a closer look at that to figure out what, if anything, we can do to ensure that, again, temporary housing facilities are included in these discussions. 
but there's a lot of work still to be done. And luckily we have a great number of partners that we can work with and we'll continue to work with. Is there anything else about this issue or you know, the work that's being done around this issue that you think people should know about? I wanted to mention the grassroots boots on the ground advocacy that Vocal New York is doing and has done since the get-go. They were already organizing around this issue, I believe, before we, City Bar Justice Center, issued our report on Wi-Fi access. Um, they have a homelessness union, and they were working on the issue, and they, you know, we joined forces with them, which was wonderful, and they brought their members who've experienced, you know, the lack of Wi-Fi access in shelters firsthand to meetings that we had with legislators and their staff. And I think what the mem- what the individuals from Vocal who told their stories brought to the table was incredibly impactful. So I really, I think it's really important that advocates, you know, lawyers, you know, join with community groups and grassroots organizers to do this work together. I, and I think getting the stories out of people is really important because I think it's really what's going to move the state on this issue ultimately. I, and I think the stories of school children not being able to engage in education move the city. So I think that's one of the strategies that we've got to continue to utilize and it is really impactful. Yeah, I agree. It's been, it's been really wonderful um, getting to partner with so many amazing organizations that do this work every single day. And as with any advocacy issue, you have to look at as many avenues as you, as you can for trying to address the issue. So I think this is a great issue of multiple, you know, having multiple approaches towards an issue, dealing with it at the most local level through direct action that the executive can take at the city level to litigation, to trying to get standalone legislation passed, to trying to get budget funding passed. We, we're really covering all of our bases with this bill and there's more work to be done, but we have a really great team that's working on it. So we're looking forward to continuing to work together on this. Thank you so much, Lisa, for chatting with us today. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. After speaking with Lisa, I talked to someone whose budget issue might sound simpler, but proved just as challenging. Betsy Kramer is the Director of Public Policy and Special Litigation Projects at Lawyers for Children. From Betsy's position on the City Bar's Family Court and Family Law Committee, together with the Council on Children, she has been working to support a long overdue increase of funding for representation of parents and children in family court and matrimonial proceedings. In New York, there exists a right to assign counsel for parents and children in a range of family law proceedings involving the infringement of fundamental interests and rights, including cases involving child custody, abuse and neglect, foster care placement, termination of parental rights and family offense proceedings. A lot of budget issues have become complex legislative affairs, but this one is all about finding the money for a program that badly needs it. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the the letter that the council sent out this year related to the budget? So the council sent a letter to Governor Hochul and the leadership in the legislature um, asking for the budget to include increased funding for representation for parents and children in family court and matrimonial proceedings. And there are really three parts to that. It was an increase in the hourly 
rates paid to 18B assigned counsel. It was increased funding for institutional providers of uh, attorney for children services and an increase in the budget for the Office of Indigent Legal Services. The, the last pay raise under the 18B attorneys was, was in 2004. There have only been two raises in the last 32 years, <laughs> and the current rate it paid to 18B attorneys is, is $75 an hour, which is far below um, certainly comparable rates for paid to attorneys in, in, in other proceedings and throughout the city. This is an issue that affects more than just family counsel, but also there's criminal representation that goes on with 18B lawyers, civil court representation. So while your letter focused specifically on the needs of children's and fam- children and families, we should mention that this is also a more expansive issue in dealing with all of those areas. In you know, as you mentioned, this is something that's been going on for a really long time. This year, do you think made it a ripe time to bring this before the legislature and try to get something like this included in the budget? So I think a big impetus this year was Jay Johnson's report on equal justice in the courts, which really noticed that um, the family courts are under-resourced and overburdened and the lack of appropriate funding for attorneys working in the family courts is a significant factor in the lack of equality and the lack of fair access to justice for low-income families and children in the family courts. Um, You know, that study was sort of came on the heels of Judge DeFiore's report from 2019, which created the Commission on Parental Legal Representation, which also documented a crisis in parent representation caused by funding deficiencies. Um, The Office of Indigent Legal Services last year did a study of caseload standards, which recommended that caseload standards reflect the reality of the way that legal services can be provided um, in in a meaningful way and that more funding was needed in order to resource parents rep- parental representation in order to so that they could you know really provide high quality services in addition <laughs> um, right on, on the heels of the pandemic the attorney for children offices budgets were cut by 10% and just all saw a huge number of attorneys leaving the panel, leaving the attorney for children offices. Um, and there's a, def- a desperate need to hire competent, capable attorneys in sufficient numbers to provide good representation to families. So it was really, I think, a number of, of circumstances that came together that said this was the time for us to really push for this. One of the other pieces I think that your your letter references, this is also not happening just within the context of the budget. There is also standalone legislation that has been introduced, which is important for, I think, people to know. A lot of times issues will get assumed into the budget that are also standalone bills. Um, so there is a piece of legislation that the council has advocated for and basically recommended that the legislation be included in the budget, um, a piece of legislation sponsored by Assemblymember Magnarelli and Senator Bailey that's currently pending. We, um, I know there's also some litigation around this issue. Can you just speak briefly about what's going on there? So the New York County Lawyers Association has filed a lawsuit against the state and the city and several other defendants based on 
the inadequate funding for assigned counsel for parents and criminal defendants. That lawsuit is, is still pending in Supreme Court. It is very similar to a suit that was filed 20 years ago. The last time rates were increased as a direct result of that legal action. Um, so that is one other avenue that could potentially help to address this budget issue. And in terms of um, your advocacy efforts, um, you know, the council sent this letter. Um, a lot of organizations were very active. I know the state bar was very active in supporting a number of organizations um, have been pushing for this um, increase in rates. Was there any natural opposition or you know, groups coming out against this or is this pretty much a pure funding issue? It appears to be a pure funding issue. I think anybody would argue that parents and children and people accused of crimes who can't afford to hire counsel are entitled to be assigned counsel in a timely manner, counsel who are competent, counsel who aren't so overwhelmed by the amount of cases that they are required to take. The only opposition seems to be the cost. Yeah. So that leads us to what ended up actually happening in the budget. You know, this is an issue that I think a lot of folks were really optimistic about. This was included in both one house bills. So both the Senate and assembly puts forward slightly different versions, but both included language about some sort of increase to the rates. Why don't you tell listeners what ended up happening in the final budget? In the end, there was no funding, no additional funding in the budget for 18B attorneys for the offices that represent children or for the Office of Indigent Legal Services. So in terms of next steps for something like this, unfortunately, I think, you know, thankfully we have the standalone bill, but it looks as if we are starting over again in terms of trying to push the legislation. That bill that I that we mentioned earlier is still in committee. Um, and one of the things I think that we see have historically seen when it comes to budget negotiations as that it's often difficult to get bills passed that have a price tag attached to them passed outside of the budget process, particularly under the previous governor. We do, obviously, as we've discussed, have a new governor, and that means maybe that we have another bite at the apple with this. And I know from the city bar's perspective, and I'm sure other advocates' perspectives, this is not an issue that we'll be letting go. So we'll be supporting the standalone bill. This is definitely one of those things now, as we're kind of digesting everything from the budget, that our office, the policy department, will be following up with committees to talk about next steps and figure out where we go from here. So seeing where checking in with bill sponsors, checking in with other advocates to see about next steps will be really important in the coming weeks because there's not really a ton of time left, unfortunately, before session ends. So getting a bill like this passed is going to require um, a pretty strong amount of support from groups that are engaged on this. Is there anything um, in terms of as you've dealt with this budget process that surprised you or um, you learned about differently this year or just found interesting in your experiences in, in, in navigating New York's complicated budgetary process? The thing that is always surprising is how opaque the process is. Even until the very final moments, nobody seemed to really know what was going to be in the budget and what was not going to be in the budget. It's all done seemingly behind very closed doors. 
which is incredibly frustrating because if there had been some notification that maybe this wasn't going to be in the budget, there could have been more conversations about why it was so important and why maybe in the long run, although it seemed to have a big price tag, it would actually in the long run save money in, in various ways. But there was no opportunity for that. And that is, is frustrating. Yeah, I think that is unfortunately a common theme when we talk about these issues, the the opacity of the process and the inability for advocates to make their voices heard around these issues because there's it's done in such a short timeline with so many different people trying to have their voices heard. It makes it really, really challenging to break through. So I think that's going to be a common theme as we talk about the issues in this podcast of, uh, about this budget process. Is there anything else that you wanted to make sure to highlight or talk about when it comes to this issue or, you know, this budget process generally? You know, just that I, I hope that the spotlight won't come off of this issue just because the budget process is over. There, as you said, is an opportunity to pass a standalone bill, maybe with a longer effective date um, so that it could be funded later. And it's important to make voices heard around this issue so that it doesn't go away. And I think the more that it's discussed and the more that there is a spotlight on the crisis in the courts, the more likely we are to get something done, either outside of the budget or in the next budget. Well, thank you so much, Betsy. We appreciate you taking the time and and chatting with us about this. Thanks for having me. While the ETB rate increase essentially came down to dollars and cents, our next topic combines funding with reimagining an entire oversight commission. Ed Murray is chair of the City Bar's Government Ethics and State Affairs Committee. The committee has long been vocal about the need to reform JCO, the Joint Commission on Public Ethics, which ensures compliance with the state's ethics and lobbying laws and regulations. Advocates think that the commission should be more independent from the people that it regulates. This is an issue that got a lot of attention in the press and that the governor and leadership put their hands on directly. I talked to Ed about the need for JCO reform and the way that it got tangled in budget deal making. So in our discussion with committee members today, we're talking about some of the different ways the city bar interacts with the budget process. Our government ethics and state affairs committee had a particularly interesting experience uh, because it had touches on this budget process from start to finish. Ed, why don't you give listeners some background on the committee's work around ethics oversight in New York? It's a long history, 10 years, I think, at this point, working on JCOPE. Sure. So the State Ethics Commission, which is called the Joint Commission on Public Ethics, was created in 2011. And the City Bar has been involved uh, in keeping tabs on on what the Ethics Commission has been doing over the last 10 plus years. Uh, And we have uh, former City Bar President Evan Davis to thank for that. He's been a strong, effective voice here in in government ethics. And he was a member of this committee during the past 10 years uh, and was involved in putting out a report uh, five, six years ago on the status of of J-COPE and suggested reforms. So this has been a, a big issue for the committee over the last 10 plus years. Uh, when I became chair, uh, it was about the 10-year anniversary of JCOPE, and our committee put out a 10-year status report in 2021. And we also did a public event where we had members of the legislature, lobbyists, uh, and academics come talk about JCOPE and its future. So just to give um, listeners, because I think those areas where people know in theory, when we say ethics enforcement, you know, they have an idea of what that means. 
But can you talk just a little bit about what COPE does and why the city bar and your committee have argued that the current structure of the commission is ineffective and not able to really count its duties? Why do, why do we need these changes? Uh, so JCOPE regulates state employees, state officials, and lobbyists. And a, a good way of thinking about what JCOPE is, it's, it's essentially a conflicts of interest board. Uh, it regulates its issues of, of gifts to public employees, and it reviews and it receives financial disclosure statements. Uh, and it does those, those sorts of things. One of the concerns that people had with JCOPE was that it wasn't designed to be a strong independent voice for, for government ethics and, and regulate these, administer the state ethics rules in a fair and, and strong manner. And there are a number of reasons why that was the case. And one issue was just the way the commission was designed. It's a 14 member commission. Eight members are appointed by the legislature uh, and six were appointed by the governor. A common criticism for for this was that it's hard to be for a commission to be independent if they're appointed appointed by the persons whom they regulate, and that I'll, we'll get more on to this later when we talk about what our suggestions were for reform. But that was one issue: the size of the commission and who did the appointing to the commission. Another issue was Jacob had special voting rules, where a minority of members, two sometimes three members, can block any enforcement action, even if the 11 or 12 other commission members supported it. These were special voting rules, and they went fit hand in glove with the way the commissioners were appointed. So the governor got to appoint six members, but three of his appointees could block any enforcement action. The Senate Republican leader, even though the Senate Republican leader is now the minority leader in the Senate, gets to appoint three members to the commission. And those three appointees are enough votes to block any enforcement action that they uh, into one of their members uh, or one of their staffers. And finally, the Democratic Assembly leader gets to appoint three members to Jay Cope, and any of his appointees uh, was sufficient to block any enforcement action into any of his members or any of his staffers. And, and finally, there was an issue of transparency. JCOPE is subject to strict confidentiality rules regarding any enforcement action, uh, and they are also were not subject to the straight uh, the state's freedom of information law and open meetings law. So there was their actions were very opaque and didn't help uh, support the notion that they were acting in the public interest if everything they were doing was kind of shrouded in secrecy. Um, so the, as I mentioned, these were some of the structural deficiencies with JCOPE and how this played out over the last 10 years. There were a number of enforcement actions or issues that arose where the public thought there should be stronger enforcement with respect to Assembly Speaker Sheldon Silver, with respect to some of the governor's aides and they did not take any action whatsoever. And some of the actions or discussions regarding these potential actions were disclosed to the public, and it just caused more outrage that nothing was actually happening at, at JCOPE. Governor Hochul came into office, obviously, after former Governor Cuomo had to step down for a number of reasons and wanted to make a statement about ethics. Um, so we saw in the, the budget this year a standalone proposal to reform the Ethics Commission, basically replace Jacob entirely with the new commission. Can you just give us a, a brief sense of what the governor's proposal was? Yeah, the, the key highlight with the governor's proposal and a, and a big issue for a number of groups and, and press outlets was 
the appointment method because uh, everybody thought, rightly so, that that was key to having a truly independent ethics commission. And the governor had an interesting proposal where the 15 law school deans in the state would be charged with making appointments to the ethics commission. Uh, and the commission under the governor's initial proposal would would be much smaller than the current 14 member commission. I can't remember exactly, I believe it was either five or seven. So you would have 15 law school deans making direct appointments to the commission. Uh, and it was our hope with that proposal that it would be a public application process where anybody across the state would be able to apply. It just wouldn't be a hand selected people who were recommended by state legislators or the governor to be the appointments, but there would actually be a truly public process where people could apply. And then based on that, the law school deans would call down and select the five or, or seven members to the state ethics commission. The legislature, it turned out, had no interest at all uh, in that proposal. Uh, and so that went nowhere in the budget negotiations. However, the, the issue of the law school deans did continue on in some form in the, in the process that was adopted. In terms of advocacy around this issue, the City Bar takes all different sorts of routes when it comes to advocacy based on the issue. I think this was a great example of the City Bar partnering with other groups to try to advocate in tandem for a change. You know, we always have to maintain the City Bar's voice and make sure that we are speaking as an organization, you know, we don't throw into coalitions, but we are able to partner with other organizations as appropriate. And I think this was a great example of us being able to work with other groups towards a common goal. So Ed, can you talk a little bit about how the Government Ethics Committee collaborated with some outside groups on this issue? Sure. I, I think that's one of the was one of the interesting issues with this whole process. It's often easier to, to come up with your own ideas as to how you think things should be reformed uh, and what you think about proposals. But with the, an issue like this, we felt it would be stronger to speak as one voice with a number of organizations statewide. We had issued previous reports by ourselves on JCOPE reform, but when this bubbled up to be a high-profile issue for this upcoming for this budget uh, session, we had joined hands with uh, a number of good government groups: Citizens Union, Reinvent Albany, Common Cause, League of Women Voters, and NIPERG and Sexual Harassment Working Group, and. We had worked together jointly and met regularly on issues that came up. We met with the governor's office. We met with state legislative offices and talked about our ideas for reform, got feedback from them and fine-tuned what we thought would be the best approach uh, and what we thought was feasible going forward. And when the governor had issued her budget proposal back in January, we had all we had different thoughts about how what how effective that proposal was, but we ultimately came together uh, and issued a joint statement because we thought that would be stronger and more effective in, in getting our voices heard if we spoke collectively on the issue uh, instead of by ourselves. So it was a really interesting process, and it was also a challenge because everybody has very strong opinions about uh, particularly an issue like the appointment method and who should be appointed and how, how the size of the commission. There are no easy answers whatsoever. And we saw that with uh, the legislature when they were grappling with the issue, when it, the ball was actually in their court at the end of the, the budget session. And it, it was a challenge, but I, I, I think it was, it was the best approach for us, even if we didn't get exactly what we wanted in the budget here. So as budget negotiations continued, it became clear the legislature wasn't thrilled with what the governor had proposed. We attempted to move the dialogue forward 
taking a couple of different approaches. First, we decided to put forward our own proposal that we worked on with good government groups, which tried to respond to the concerns raised by the governor and the legislature while also maintaining the commission's independence. We also issued multiple press releases and promoted editorial board pieces that were also calling for a new commission. As we've already telegraphed, the final budget came out and unfortunately it didn't include our proposal, but instead established something entirely different. Can you talk about what ended up being adopted by the legislature and the governor? What was ultimately adopted was an 11 member commission. The governor and the comptroller and the attorney general and the state legislative leaders would each recommend somebody to be appointed to the commissioner commission. And then the New York Law School deans, which was part of the governor's initial proposal, uh, but here the, the New York Law School deans would essentially vet these recommendations and approve them for appointment to the commission. So with this 11-member commission, the governor would have three appointments, the state senate leader would have two appointments, the state assembly leader would have two appointments, and then everybody else would have one appointment to make up an 11-member commission. This appointment process was pretty much uniformly panned uh, as a political process because there's really no reason why one official or another gets to appoint more than one person to the commission. But here you have the Democratic leaders and the, the state legislature and the Democratic governor appointing seven members to an 11-member commission. And with this new commission, they don't have special voting rules like they do with JCOPE but they can only act by a majority vote or a total of six votes. So these three leaders essentially control all actions by the commission. So our response to this appointment method was it's, it's flawed. And the response of the editorial boards is that it's flawed and no better than, than Jayco. So at this point, there's not much we can do. It remains to be seen how effective they could be. But I would just, I want to add that there are other reforms to uh, this ethics commission that should be noted. One, you know, aside from the appointment method, there is no special voting rule. So it's actions by majority vote of the commission. In addition, there's, there's some more transparency measures for the new commission. They're now subject to FOIL and subject to open meetings law. But I would put a caveat on that. There are exceptions to disclosure disclosure under FOIL. So a lot of the work that Jacob does could still be withheld from public disclosure under one of the exceptions. So there's that, but it does flip the script for Jacob or the new ethics commission in favor of disclosure. So it remains to be seen how effective this commission is. At this point, we just have to wait and see. An interesting aspect of the of the, of the new commission is that there'll be annual hearings every year uh, to receive feedback from the public on reforms. So we will eventually, I imagine, participate in those hearings and make suggestions at those hearings. It would also be good if the state legislature had hearings as well, because they are the ones that make the laws. And I'm sure we'll be pushing at some point for, for that. Yeah, I think we can say with certainty that the City Bar and your committee will be very closely watching as this new commission takes shape and staying engaged in terms of responding to any kind of rulemaking procedures, but also making 
report back in terms of what's working and what's not. This is the commission we now have, so we're going to need to hope for the best, but also continue to advocate for the kind of commission we ultimately want to see. So I, I have no doubt that we will be staying very engaged on this as we move forward. Just to wrap up, was there anything about this process that was particularly surprising or interesting to you in terms of your committee involvement and the work that you've done through the bar doing this kind of more hands-on advocacy work? Yeah, I was I was surprised. Uh, you know, I, I had been involved with the bar, city bar for a number of years on a number of different committees. And as you mentioned, we had prepared reports and put out statements. And that's 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 common practice. But, you know, here being involved in the number of good government organizations and, and taking, uh, in some instances, in aggressive stances on proposals put out by the, the governor or the legislature. You know, it wasn't exactly what I anticipated doing, uh, what I would be doing in, in this role, but it was it was a fascinating process to be a part, a part of. And you, Elizabeth, and Maria Salenti are just superstars uh, in, in this type of work. And it was great to work with you in this capacity, aside from just doing the, the bare bones analysis of, of the law. So it, it, was a, it was a fun process to be a part of. I hope we can continue to work in, in this way. We love to hear that. Um, and one of the reasons that we wanted to have these conversations was to let committee members know about all the various facets of not only the budget process, but the way as committee that committee's committee is an example of that. Um, is there any, you know, before we wrap up, anything else that you want to touch on or that we didn't discuss that you want to make sure that we... No, I just have one question for you. What were you surprised about uh, with this whole process? I guess I would say what I'm surprised about is that I wasn't surprised. Albany tends to be cyclical. There's certain budget. There's a certain budget dance that plays out each year, so you know what to expect up to a point. But with this being the first budget under our new governor, I really wasn't sure what to expect. It was a clean slate, and it wasn't clear how she would handle the process. But after it all played out, I don't think there was much change. The budget remained a mostly secretive process that was di really difficult to engage with and hard to crack through to find out what the specifics of the policies being discussed were. But I think we did a really great job as a group doing our best to engage with that process and working together to speak on an important issue. Thanks, Ed, for taking the time to chat with us today. Really appreciate all the work you did over the last several months on this issue and looking forward to continuing to work together. Thank you. Thanks so much for your time and for all your good work here. In the end, as happens every year after the budget passes, there's still more work to be done. Things may have become more complicated now that the State Court of Appeals throughout New York's congressional and Senate district lines, which were drawn by Democrats earlier this year. The primaries for those races have been pushed from June to August, and candidates will have to deal with major uncertainty as new districts are drawn. While this will undoubtedly have some impact on the remainder of session, we will adjust our advocacy efforts as needed to respond. We look forward to continuing our advocacy with our dedicated and expert committee members up to and including the last scheduled day of session, June 2nd. Many thanks to Betsy, Lisa, and Ed for taking the time to speak to us. For more information on this year's budget and the agenda items we'll be advocating for during the remainder of session, check out the show notes. Thank you for listening to the 44th Street Podcast of the New York City Bar Association. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. Find more City Bar podcasts and program audio on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher, or at our website at nycbar.org.
This podcast was produced by Eli Cohen and Elizabeth Cochenda and edited by Eli Cohen.